I told you it said world apocalypse. Those are the exact words that it told me it would do if we did not keep doing this. But what is the word apocalypse? Where does that, what does that mean? Exactly? Well, you want me like the fear of like the, the etymology of the word apocalypse for well, I you? I feel like if we don't understand. Grab a dictionary for once in your life. I, well, I, I have an app. Uh, I just, I can't find it. I don't All know right. which folder I put it in, but uh, if we don't know what apocalypse means, then what are we I don't really about? want to test it. In the last week, I have oscillated between like a Johnny Five and a Hal situation here in my house, okay? So I don't really want to like mess with the beast all that much. We have to watch Still Crazy. Mm, okay. Well, at least in this case, I don't know what that movie is. How bad could it be? It's like a British movie about music. Yeah. I, I'm British music. Th those are things that have worked together well in history. I think only a few bands have come over from across the pond. One or two. Mm -hmm. I like Pete Best the best. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. I feel like we should introduce ourselves. My name is Kyle Marshall. My name is David Young. You know, if you're new to the podcast, then let me catch you up. I'm just your average guy who happens to be aggressively handsome and incredibly smart. I built this machine to randomly suggest movies to watch, but then it gained sentience. And now in order to not initiate Armageddon, it's forcing me and David to go through a specific year of film to discover what remains relevant. Today, we're going to be talking about the movie Still Crazy, which released in October 30th, 1998 in the UK. But it went into wide release in the United States and Canada on January 22nd, 1999. I think your computer needs some calibration. It, it's doing fine, all right? The other major release this weekend was Gloria, starring Sharon Stone. It was directed by Sidney Lumet and written by John Cassavetes and Steve Anton. Nope, nothing. And it is basically impossible to find anywhere to actually watch it, so... Uh, this movie is rated currently 7 on IMDb. Mm. It has no rating on Metacritic. Mm. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it's 73% by critics and 84% by the people who watched it, the fans. Wow. Currently, you can watch it by going to iTunes or YouTube for rental or for purchase. Uh, it stars Stephen Ray as the character Tony, Billy Connolly as the character Huey, Jimmy Nail as Les, Timothy Spall as David, and then Bill Nighy as Ray. Here's some backstory about those creative people involved. Let's start with Stephen Ray. He's basically our main actor here, but he'd been acting for 30 years at this point. The major film he had been in before this was The Crying Game. Ooh. And if you recall Fever Pitch, then maybe Fever Pitch. Mm. Uh, but since then, he has continued to act. You might be familiar with him being one of the main antagonists in V for Vendetta. Nice, good uh, movie. But he continues doing a lot of TV appearances. And next up is this show called Flesh and Blood, which looks like a UK miniseries sort of thing. Comedy, sounds like. <laughs> Maybe. Lighthearted. Billy Connolly is known for doing stand-up and just generally being a funny guy from Scotland. He had been a voice in Pocahontas and also appeared in Muppet Treasure Island. 
Afterwards, he would be in such films as The Boondock Saints, The Last Samurai, Garfield, and the second X-Files film, and one of the Hobbit films. In 2013, he received the double whammy of being diagnosed with prostate cancer and Parkinson's. He has not made a film or TV show appearance since 2016. He's pretty funny. I've seen everything except for The Hobbit, which I boycotted because it's uh, one of my favorite novels and how that becomes a trilogy of films is uh, upsetting to me. I boycotted it after seeing the first movie. <laughs> well, you went in on the first, so that's... On, on The Hobbit, yeah. I was like, nope, I'm out of this one. I can't, I can't We're getting do this. distracted. Sorry, machine. Sorry. Don't make me cut you. Jimmy Nail. He had been making a bunch of appearances on British TV. His largest role was probably of Magaldi in the film version of Evita in 1996. Do you want me to sing you some Evita? Because I can. Like uh, Madonna Evita? The Madonna uh, I mean, I know it was a musical, but uh, Madonna Evita the movie, which yeah, yeah. I actually never watched. <laughs> Is that offensive to you, Kyle? I'm ready. Not I'm really. Ready. <laughs> I mean, boy, could I fill a podcast about my impressions of Evita. But we won't get there yet. Uh, he made one other film called Swing, which was released in 1999 but oh. has stayed mostly on TV for the last couple decades. Is that the Swing Dance movie? Yeah. Oh, that's a good movie. Mm -hmm. Timothy Spall. He'd been acting for 20 years. One of his earliest films was Quadrophenia, the movie about the police record. Nope. Have, you, have you seen that? They made a bunch of films about records, I find, like in the early to mid-70s, because they made one on Tommy, then they made one for Quadrophenia, probably The Wall or something they've made a film out of. I wish I could describe the look on my face in audio, but I think a pause... Think of that emoji that's like the blue on the top and like screaming. That's basically David the entire day. After this film for Timothy Spall, uh, maybe it was the cause. He's basically been this popular character actor who shows up in just almost everything. He was in Topsy Turvy, Chicken Run, Sweeney Todd, as well as having like the most prominent role, Wormtail, in the Harry Potter franchise. The next film to be released will be The Obscure Life of the Grand Duke of Corsica. It's just a, a mouthful to say. I, I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> that one? For sure. No. Bill Nighy. He had also been acting for about 20 years at this point, mostly in UK productions. His biggest credit was probably Curse of the Pink Panther. Uh, that is the one where Peter Sellers like died right before filming. So they had to change the plot to not have Inspector Clouseau in it at all. Uh, it's awful. It's a bad, bad movie. But since this film, he's been in Underworld, Love Actually, Shaun of the Dead. And then he was Davy Jones in the Pirates films. Uh, never one to say no. He has seven films currently in production. Uh, but possibly Heidi, Queen of the Mountain, will be his next, the adaptation of the children's novel. That's a lot of vampire movies he's making right now. I mean, he's always a vampire. Yeah, he, he looked like a vampire. Like, I mean, it makes sense for him to be cast. I actually uh, love Love Actually. It's such oh, you're a one corny, of those people. I know. But his character, and uh, it's pretty funny. For the rest of the podcast, he's only going to communicate via cue card that he'll throw down. <laughs> uh, this is written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. This team of writers have been writing since the mid-60s. Music is obviously a passion as it comes up a lot in their work. In 1991, they wrote the film The Commitments about a guy who starts a band. In 1997, they had written the Alicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro movie called Excess Baggage about oh. a teenager who fakes her own kidnapping and then ends up getting kidnapped for real. Uh, after this movie, though, the most popular films they have credits on are Across the Universe, where they use the Beatles music to tell a story, and The Bank Job in 2008 starring Jason Statham. 
Their last credit currently is the 2016 documentary called My Generation about culture in the UK during the 1960s. Living in the past. <laughs> right. Lastly, directed by Brian Gibson. Brian Gibson was mostly a music video director. So he did a bunch of stuff with Sticks and Foreigner specifically. He has two other films he's made. What's Love Got to Do With It in 1993. It was the story of Tina Turner. And then The Juror, a Demi Moore, Alec Baldwin court drama in 1996. Oh, wow. This film, Still Crazy, was the last movie he ever directed because he passed away in 2004 due to bone cancer. He was only 59. This robot you made is pretty macabre. There's a lot of yeah, death themes coming death. up. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the real reason he's making us watch these movies. Uh, the budget was indeterminate. It made $524,000. It's a hit. And it's a hit here, folks. So $524,000. Uh, I believe that's in the UK. No idea what it made in the international box office. I was just about to ask uh, for conversion into pounds. All right. Are you ready to go and watch this movie? Still crazy? Yeah. I mean, I got through Varsity Blues. I can do anything. <laughs> we are legion. All right. Let's go and watch... Still crazy. I have to pick this thing up again? I mean, if you want. Why would you have to pick it up again? Shit. <laughs> you, you'd already bent over. I mean, it's uh, already indoors. We're fine. There's a sound bite. Well, there's only two reasons to get you to haul your ass up here. Either I owe you money, or you want to put the barn back together. They were called Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit. Been fruits a long time. So which fruit's which then? Well, I'm posh fruit. And they were one of the greatest bands of the 70s. You all hated each other in the end. Oh, it's a bit heavy. That was then. This is now. Well, here I am again in Dave's house. He is sleeping right in front of me. I'm going to just poke him here a little bit. Ah, seriously? Again, Kyle? Yeah, it's time for the ad spots. So, uh, as you know, and I know, last week, the machine was very nice and got in contact with Karen Unland and was able to make us be part of the Alberta Podcast Network. What do you have to say about the network, David? Uh, yeah, it's a network where uh, things happen networkly. It's great. You, you nailed that. Uh, I can't believe that was five tries and that was the best one. So we are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB and the Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. Uh, this week, we get to talk about ATB again. I mean, last week we talked about the uh, Arts and Culture Center. But we're going to talk about the Entrepreneur Center here this week. You and I, I guess, would both be considered entrepreneurs uh, if that term was loosened quite a bit. But uh, have you been to the Entrepreneur Center here in Calgary? Uh, yeah, Kyle, we went there together. Uh, there was, remember? There was I try to black all of this out in my mind. Son of a... Well, yeah, we were there. They, it was amazing. We had to do a big podcast. Um, let, me, let me just uh, put this picture together for you, Kyle, since apparently you weren't there. But, uh, I needed a room because we were going to, well, I keep saying we, but you apparently weren't there. I need a room because I was going to interview uh, four entrepreneurs. Interesting, entrepreneurs. And without even having an ATB account, uh, they immediately just uh, 
let me have use of a large boardroom. And then I hired an underling uh, to produce the thing. And uh, it was amazing. It was, it's a great, great, easy, easy place to, to hang out in. No, it's a crazy coincidence here that I am wearing my underling t-shirt currently. So uh, I do remember that now that you have jogged my memory. The Entrepreneur Center is a great location for people who might be like starting their own business or have even like started their own business already uh, to, to help out in that in that case. So it offers, entire center offers networking, mentoring, workshops, and banking. That's all in one place for entrepreneurs. There's locations not just in Calgary, but in Edmonton, Grand Prairie, and Lethbridge. And there's pop-up centers that happen all around the province. Uh, so you can go to atbentrepreneurcenter.com to see more information. Now, how much do you know about college? I call it, is that what happens after high school? It's supposed to. Uh, those of us who, you know, want to waste a whole bunch of money like I did. Uh, English majors unite. So the we have a message from Norquest College that's going to end off this ad spot here. But Norquest College is for people who maybe want to continue and pursue a, uh, a new career. Your next career move is right around the corner, and Norquest College is here to help. Our new Career Moves Professional Development Program will help you transition to new job opportunities. Funded by the Future Skills Center, we will provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, self-assessments, skill development and training, and up to $2,000 in available tuition credit. Our focus is your success. Make your next move. Apply today at norquest.ca slash career moves. All right, we're back. Uh, maybe, I don't know. My head is a little bit like uh, wonky after sitting out and watching that. Uh, David, lay it at me. What are your initial interpretations, responses to Still Crazy? Uh, so that about sums it up. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, you know what? I will say uh, it made how much money in the box office? Well, it says 524,000. I'm pretty sure that's probably just the UK only. Yeah, I think that would explain best uh, how I feel about this uh, film. Uh, but uh, so to, to sideswipe, uh, side so to sidestep this, uh, Kyle, what are your thoughts? Uh, here is the hard thing. This is, here is where I'm going to level with you. This is my own baggage that I'm bringing to this. And I completely realize that. And this might make some people mad. I have a really hard time watching movies whose central thesis is like that rock music is like uh, going to save humanity. That entire concept has always felt a little bit false to me and um, delusional, I guess, at best. And that's basically what this movie is. It's like these washed up musicians getting back together after 20 years of being broken apart and like all their baggage comes back with them. And then they finally perform and everything, I guess, is fine in their lives after that. F to me, it's just like it, either the movie has to be like so extremely funny that I'm along that ride or it is hitting at something more it's hitting at something inside me more than just that central thing is like rock music is great and it's going to save you uh which has never felt like anything to me so that's where i, I come at I, overall i really did not have a good time watching this movie like at all like i basically checked out about 30 minutes in and there was still another hour left of movie to to get through which is too bad because i mean it's not like the actors aren't trying their best at this it's not like there are a couple of funny bits that happen, but it's mostly just like, I just, 
I get it. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know exactly where this is going to go to. And it's not entertaining enough for me to be like, I'm, I'm okay with being along on the ride with this. The other thing I will say too, this is also a hard thing for movies to get right. But I, for, for, as an example, I think that a movie that I quite love once does really, really well, which is if you're going to have like quote unquote, a band playing music in your movie, I, a have to believe that they're actually playing that and that they could, but also B to that, that the music is actually good, that when people freak out over it, that they're like, I can be like, oh, okay, I get it. I understand why people are freaking out. The music in this movie literally feels like it was probably dated in 1999. So it's like, I don't understand why people freak out about this. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. The songs aren't really that good. Um, so I feel like I'm being super negative. I don't know. Do you have any positives to say about it? No, but I, you know, <laughs> listening to you, I, I remember this term uh, from my past, the willing suspension of disbelief. And it's a term I think that's, I can't remember if it's just theater, but uh, definitely movies. Uh, whatever they're doing to set up that you actually want to believe that something's happening. Like so f- superhero movies, they're, you know, mm-hmm. rationally dumb, but uh, they're set up in a way that, you, you know, you're like, okay, well, uh, this hugely buff, blonde-haired man picks up this impossibly heavy hammer. You're like, yeah, of course, he's Thor. But in this one, uh, there's nothing of that. The other first thought I had while you were describing, I'm remembering when uh, you're reading the printout of the top actors, this movie is actually central. The central character is a heroine. It's a woman. And she's actually she's good. She actually performs quite well. And she's not even mentioned uh, in the readout, which I think is a fascinating comment. <laughs> Uh, both of this film and of the times. Um, from the opening sequence, I thought I was watching an 80s BBC television show. I thought the cuts were weird. I didn't understand the premise. I thought the characters were terribly written, ca- cartoonish. Well, but not I mean, not, not, not even just like the main band characters, but to that point, your, your heroine character, I think she's forgotten halfway through the movie. Right. And she has a daughter that comes along that is even... I don't even know why that character is even there because they try and have this like side story, but again, goes in literally nowhere. <laughs> like it's forgotten two thirds of the way through the movie. Yeah, she starts off as this. I, I actually kind of like this idea that uh, whatever you call them, um, I, I don't even think I think they brought in the movie. She wasn't even a band manager. She's like a super fan or dating one of the guys, but she's part of the crew mm-hmm. on this new quest uh, started by condom merchant, uh, whatever his character name is. Um, she decides that she's going to in memorandum of both uh, a passed away character in it, but also of her pa- forgotten youth, put the energy in and act out and like live a dream, which I was like, oh, yeah, like. As terrible as it's been so far, as poorly as it's shot, as visually unappealing as everything's going, uh, as boring as the dialogue is, like, here's a woman that seems interesting. And then, like you said, uh, she brings in the daughter and they're having this uh, reunion. I'm like, oh, this this daughter and this relationship's going to play a big role. So I thought initially, you know, maybe she'll become a singer or an amazing uh, hidden talent. And then, no, it's just nothing. Yeah, I mean, we are now concocting, I think, a movie that would be more interesting for sure. (laughs) Uh, Because I do want to see that movie. I think having the band almost be the background to the family drama of like a mother and daughter trying to reconnect, that is interesting. Um, And I think this is partly due to the fact, so because I'm such a huge fan of musical theater and do another podcast about musical theater specifically, uh, I've been having this thing at the top of my head about like what makes great musical theater. 
I think one of those things is that if you are going to bring music into your movie like this was, one of the cool things you can do is use music very effectively to comment on the situation, but also progress the narrative forward. And I don't think they ever did. Every time that there was music being played, it always felt like, okay, we're stopping dead so that these people can play Perform. some music. It's part of that is because of the conceit of this being a movie about musicians where you kind of always have that. But even in stuff that I'm not a huge fan of, like Bohemian Rhapsody, for instance, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, they still picked which songs they were playing to advance the plot forward. Like the song that they are working on actually comments on what the action is that's happening in the movie. And this one never did. <laughs> and it drove me nuts because it's like, oh, what an opportunity you would have had to actually comment on what is going on. Once is the same way. It's, it essentially is a musical because every song they perform is commenting on the relationship that those two central characters have every single time. You could still take that song out and listen to it, but it's still serving a very dramatic purpose inside the movie. Um, and then this one, it's just like, oof, okay, well, here's another slog from a, a supposed 70s song being played in 1999. Maybe you would have a better idea. You were probably, what, 45 at the time in 1999. So was, was 70s a big thing in the 90s, like the 80s would be in the early 2000s? Um, I just don't recall that being a thing, but I could be very no, wrong. I mean, there was, well, okay, let me take it back to my 40s. Oh, man, my memory's going now that I'm getting so old. I, I think, at least within my limited pocket of cultural uh, experience, and of course, growing up in Toronto, where you know, the only thing that mattered was uh, what was happening in Toronto. Um, for me growing up, my retro idea, the idea of cool retro rock on 102.1, you know, Edge FM, uh, I can't believe I remember the radio station, was uh, 80s, right? It was mm -hmm. the precursor to emos, Depeche Mode, Pesha Boys, it was uh, stuff like that. This sort of ironic British music that came out where they would uh, have this poppy sort of underbeats and sing about the end of the world. There's always a 70s core and everything. So whatever generation, at least in Toronto and amongst the people that I've met there, they're always zealots for um, Sabbath, Zeppelin, mm -hmm. and these big seminal bands of the, I mean, even 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, this whole movie, it might be a British culture thing too, but it just feels so... I wonder if that's part of it too, is that it came out late 1998, but really 1999 here across the Atlantic, we are also divorced from even understanding what that culture was like in the late 90s. Like I have a, a feel for what North America felt like in the late 90s, but I don't really know what it felt like in the UK in the 90s. So maybe this is something that was commenting specifically on that and we're just kind of missing that. I will say that it does feel like in a way it's trying to recapture the magic of the full Monty, which had come out a couple of years before that and had done so well. Uh, nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars the, uh, the year that came out. And I feel like this is coming after that, being like, oh, we're going to like, you know, capture lightning in a bottle and then it's not really doing anything <laughs> with that. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I didn't know about the historical relation to Full Monty, but it's a great sort of side-by-side -side comparison. I can't remember the last time I watched the Full Monty, maybe when it was released yeah. in the film. Well, maybe this machine will tell us to here at some point. You know, my memory of the Fumanti, especially coming out just after What's-His-Face uh, became big in, what was the, two, uh, Lockstock? He's a guy, mm. Richie guy, I can't remember his name now. But it's a cartoon, right? Mm -hmm. um, so as much as there's this, I mean, you brought it once too, there's this sort of like wannabe docu 
documentary feel like these are real mm -hmm. people and this is like gritty and but Fulmonti for me my memory of it anyways is this cartoon it's a comic book movie these it's silly uh, and it's all it's meant to be it's is silly and funny. Yeah. right and this movie it's trying so hard to sell to you that these are actual rock musicians in their in their decline in their mm -hmm. failure even the opening premise of this ridiculous idea that they're going to be the best band in the world they're already doing arena tours and they just get up on the stage at the whatever festival and lightning hits right. and destroys the world you know figuratively and then they go their separate ways is stupid it's not even it just doesn't make any sense to me it would make sense if they broke up like on the way up or mm -hmm. having been there and established and you know then we do the bohemian rhapsody thing like the you know where there's uh, personality issues well I, I think you're right though like the the setup of the entire movie is that they broke up because of this lightning strike that hits them while they're performing in this like huge venue and then i guess they never talk to each other after that like i like that whole conceit still doesn't make any sense to me maybe even less sense is at the very end where the lightning is about to strike again in the same arena now that they're 20 years older and basically she wags a finger and then the clouds part again it's like wait what it's terrible <laughs> that's a different movie completely than the one that you've been building up to they even i, I remember when they did the lightning strike they do have the uh, narration of some of the backstory of how the bandmates didn't like each other to try to set up where the characters would end up towards the end of the film and introduce us to where the tension might be uh, with the bass player and the the missing lead singer etc cetera, etc cetera. but and again this might be a cultural thing maybe as a North American, I need it visual and I just don't give a shit about what I hear. Like I heard it. And then when it's happening, I don't feel anything. I don't feel any empathy for the people. Mm. Uh, they feel plastic. Even that scene where the bass player is starting to be introduced and he's sitting alone in the, in the bus and he's actually talented. Mm -hmm. I mean, they bring that up and you start thinking, oh, maybe that's where this is going to go, that this is going to be his, but that's not even, that's dropped as well. It, it doesn't matter. It's not part of the narrative by the end. I mean, he gets on mic, but who, who gives Well, a it's shit? like, yeah, it's like all these little plot threads that I feel the screenwriters and the creative behind it believe that people are going to be much more emotionally invested in than, than we actually are. Because it's, isn't there, there's a thing too with the, is it Jimi Hendrix's tooth or something like that? So that's, weird. He's wearing around his neck, which I mean, probably isn't, but still he's wearing that what, what he believes it is. That gets lost, but then there's no real, yeah I, there's nothing that happens because of the fact that he's lost it. Yeah. It's supposed to be this metaphor of like how he's going to finally give everything he has to this woman he's been secretly mm -hmm. in love with for however many years and it's just it's it's just yeah fault it literally disappears in that snow yeah and you, you just don't like it's gone or or the other one where her daughter is starting to cozy up with the young bass player the that hot, they brought the hot young stud that they yeah. brought into the band to help him out and then she knows it's going on and doesn't say or do anything just sticks along She's and then fine. again that doesn't really resolve itself either are they still together not together it seems like they've been having fights in the background. Like, again, I, I don't know. I'm making stuff up because I really don't know what happened <laughs> to, to that plot line. Also, visually being judgmental, uh, like particularly with the mother-daughter relationship, there's no context on how old they are, what their actual relationship mm -hmm. is. I think they mentioned that she might be the daughter of one of the, like, so she might be 18 or 20. So where what are the responsibilities they have that she's just going to go on this tour and just hang in this disgusting bus where everybody's kind of like pissing right. and like who's actually going to help out her daughter if she didn't come along yeah you know? it's so strange and then there are these little tense moments where she's struggling with like being a mother where she's like you can't 
make these mistakes or these things are bad, but then they drop that too. And mm-hmm. you just never get to see where she's going, what she's up to or what happens to her. Here's one thing that I'll lay as a positive, which is also going to grow into be another negative. I have a feeling, but there was a statement that one of the characters makes. I wrote it down in my notes, so I can't actually remember which character was that said it, but it's like the idea that this band has been like building up a business, but then hating it. And I like that idea because when you put so much time and energy into something, I think uh, often you really feel like you're now committed to seeing it through, even if you are having like the worst time. Exacerbated by that is if it is a creative pursuit, like a band or this podcast, where it's like you put so much work into it and then realize I really hate everything uh, about this. I, I see that you, you're wearing your t-shirt saying, I hate the machine. So I can only imagine that that's in reference to... No, this is just a t-shirt I've been wearing oh, okay. for a long time. Yeah. It's uh, part of my amazing youthful re- rebellion against right, the right. man, uh-huh. right? Against the man. Now, the machine. That's why you wear that Nirvana t-shirt too all the time. Well, that was, uh, I was a roadie for... No, I... <laughs> yeah, I... It's positive. I mean, I bring that up because I just think that's an interesting idea. Yes, they don't do anything with it. So it is kind of a negative I'm throwing at. But at the, at the very least, I think that the, the writer here at least is bringing something in that would be interesting to explore further. I think they're smart enough to understand that there's other things going on. But I think this is just a movie that needed to be baked for a little bit longer in the developmental process to be like, what is it that you're actually trying to say with it? Because I don't. I don't get anything from it. Uh, yes. I think, you know, being written in Europe, in England, you see sort of a difference, at least compared to Varsity Blues, but um, there's a little bit more complexity in the, the best movie that our podcast has reviewed so far, well, Varsity you know, Blues. I got a two. That's got a two. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, it, I think looking at it, um, how they introduce, you know, these ideas of addiction, uh, whatever, uh, entrepreneurship, failure, friendship, uh, marriage stuff, foreclosure, mansions, uh, living for other people. I, I don't know. There's so many different things. So there's a lot of opportunity there. It's become a trope now, but this idea of addictions and recovery and the role of drugs and uh, his like hallelujah moment, uh, mm-hmm. it's it gets a little weird. I, I'm watching it and I don't really understand. Yeah. It, it should have maybe not been made yet and maybe they could have taken that and maybe edit, edited it a little bit more and and just pulled out a more interest, interesting theme but thinking as well now that it got what did it get on rotten tomatoes 76 percent uh it received a 73 percent from critics 84 percent by fans so i'm kind of just dumbfounded i i think maybe the problem is us i do think so i think that I mean, you're much more jaded than I am. I'm going to throw it out there. But I just yeah, just did not have any fun watching this. Maybe I would have. Maybe I just would have in 1999. There's just been over 20 years of films made in the interim. So to go back to it now is like, there's just way better examples of what this movie is trying to do. That's a great point. I mean, I, maybe if I try to name, you know, rock, even a rock renaissance movie, prior to 99 i can't off the top of my head and then yeah try to put that into the idea that now they're kind of mm-hmm. uh, a yearly event 
There's, there's... Yeah, because we're going through like the the history of rock and roll here yeah. at this point. Um, I mean, the only one I can think of off the top of my head, although it was a mockumentary, was Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Like that's really the only one I can think of before this one. I'm sure there's others, but I think that's the other problem. Is I mean, we we mentioned to it as soon as the movie started about Spinal mm-hmm. Tap, and then all of a sudden the expectations are different. You know. Well, sure. I mean, you're also talking about one of what I think is one of the funniest movies, right? <laughs> In Spinal Tap, it's like okay, well, this is definitely not Spinal Tap. The birth of the mockumentary. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, when it starts, I'm thinking, okay, they, they have caricatures. I mean, Bill and I, he, they look like cartoon characters, but they're playing a drama. And I, every time something happens on the screens, particularly with Bill Nye's character, because he's trying to be this 70s... Uh, he Honestly, it's basically his Love Actually character. Yeah, right. Like, it basically is just that character. I actually had a moment where I was thinking, it might actually be that same character. It, it continued, you know, and they maybe, pick it up in Love maybe. Actually. But, you know, so, you know, his character being so uh, strange and quirky and clownish, I was, I think I was expecting this to go that way. I was mm-hmm. expecting the wrong things for this film. And, and you brought the other thing, too, uh, about using music and tone. I don't know anything really about cinematography, et cetera, but the use of color, the use of music. I mean, it's not there. It, mm-hmm. It's just this flat, gray, drab imagery from scene to scene, wherever they are, whether they're in punk rock venues, allegedly in Holland, to sitting on palatial yeah, estates. Which, I'm sorry, is another thing. Like, if you are a rock band, why, for the love of God, are you playing in a punk right? bar? Like, of course people are going to hate you. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that that I would fire that band manager. She should be off the bus first stop. They, they try to address it as this is the manipulation of the cruel record exec, but that character is not even in the movie after the one scene. So right. you just don't understand. Yeah, what, I mean, you're supposed to do this gritty thing to get back to practicing and to believe in yourself, uh, which we don't really get out of it. But mm. so if you're going to do dive bars, I think maybe that's another cultural thing. The idea of a dive bar here is, you know, a biker bar like some underwater mm-hmm. uh, underground sort of thing where you know might be 50 people on a shit stage and no amps but yeah maybe in europe the 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 rock and roll scene starts on a houseboat i think the first or second gig is like a houseboat on yeah i mean the, the all those things just could i couldn't connect to any of the venues i couldn't connect to the music i couldn't connect to the crowds of people oh that's changed like the depiction of what a, a party scene looks like uh, has changed so much with the way people shoot them now. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel like a real venue. It doesn't feel, mm-hmm. you know, there's like six people in the front with mohawks and, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. So I I just found myself not giving a shit, even into the end. I do, I will say this is a one positive. I liked the, are we allowed to do spoiler alerts here? But I mean, it's a 20 year old movie, okay, but sure. So the revelation um, of, I mean, the build up to the revelation is kind of stupid. But the revelation of the lost singer and genius and him being in this Zen Buddhist garden and having had a you know, psychiatric collapse and Billy Connolly's character actually having protected him, I actually kind of liked that tone. I thought with all this crap we're going through, just even that scene where he's in the, uh, in the sand garden, whatever you call those things. But then it, it just disappeared too. You know, like, uh, you know, as she's walking away and she's crying, I'm like, yeah, that's... That's and, a great which moment. Is, which is another thing. I just have to say. So they, they're told that their bassist, their original bassist is dead. And then it's revealed he's actually not dead. And then they find that he's been like this, yeah, Buddhist thing. And then he agrees to come back with them one last time to play at like this big stage where they all apparently freaked out because of a lightning strike. But they do a 
a press conference right before that thing. And I have to say, I kind of agree with the press in that scene only because it's like, we're not answering any questions. Like, but you called the press conference. <laughs> That's what the, like the, it's like, you're all leeches. It's like, but you did call the press conference. I don't understand why you would call a press conference and then sit there. I'm not answering questions. Yeah, you're the, all leeches. I'm like, this makes no sense. This whole scene setup makes no sense. Yeah. The, I think particularly through the nineties, we see suspicion of the power of the media change. Mm-hmm. I mean, the eighties, this glorious age where you can do whatever you want and everybody's just happy underneath. Everybody's doing Coke and doing all well, this stuff. It's because of the Coke, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, the fact that if you watch like Miami vice, everybody's wearing fluorescent colors and like they're shooting people and like life is great. Everybody's happy. But I think in the nineties, we see uh, in the music scene, we see, you know, the grunge movement come out. We see musicality changing both lighter and darker, the rave scene, the electronic music, et cetera. And so I think the media starts, the uh, sorry, the representation of the media starts to evolve around that time. And this is close to the end of the 90s. Um, it's before mm-hmm. social media, so the, the collapse hasn't happened. But I think the intent there is to point the finger at how, you know, the paparazzi and... Uh, this chasing after celebrities is a bad thing that is bizarre to think about like in six years facebook would launch if i'm doing my math right i think and just how different than the world just like ramped up after the next 10 years after that this uh, old lady tried to show me a picture of her cat mm-hmm. on a flip phone <laughs> and as the picture was fading i tried to tap the screen i grew up in the 70s 80s. i know how to use rotary phones right mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were discussing how the cool piece of tech might be like a, a face of a phone flipping open. And yet I was handed a flip phone and now I don't know how to operate them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't even know how to turn it back on. Like I was just, I felt very lost. And that's happened in you know, less than 20 years. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of creepy actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that scene was weird. I, the one thing about that scene from a directing thing you know it's interesting the use of you know like trying to show the panic in the way they um change the camera angles and they start focusing on that one particular bully reporter so at first it's like kind of a wide shot and everybody and then that one guy is like kind of just like fuck you you know answer the question answer the question and they get closer and closer to try to build up tension so from a mm-hmm. film perspective i was like they're trying to do something here but i, I didn't i didn't really i mean one of the things that are benevolent machine here next to us constantly wants us to figure out is like how culturally relevant is this movie that we're talking about is and i i can't help because this is only week two but looking at varsity blues and how it actually still has persisted in our culture uh for good or for bad as much as i like don't like that movie there's elements there like i get it i understand why people continue to watch it or bring it up or why it's a touchstone and in that sort of genre. I think there is a reason we started this off by saying, I've never heard of this movie before. I don't think there's anything about it that's remarkable. The music isn't, the cinematography isn't, the acting really isn't. It's fine, but it's nothing to, to write home about. It is the epitome of a movie that, yes, it exists, but I don't think it's going to persist in, in, in any meaningful way except from this podcast, because we get to talk about it. But I don't know. Is, You're welcome, still crazy. That's right. No, you know, I'm, I'm going to see, I'm going to get that uh, movie time machine bump after you. Uh, Trending on Twitter, hashtag. No, yeah. I, I uh, like I'm listening to, I agree with you, but I think there's also a level of bias in that. For example, the idea that the themes of varsity blues ring true is because we're North American. And I think mm, that mm-hmm. if I, 
grew up in Brazil or I grew up in Africa or grew up in England. I mean, maybe some of the core themes of the competitiveness and, you know, those are classic themes. I mean, like you, like you were, you suddenly felt the connection to a Shakespearean plots. Um, there will still be that core element, just like in this movie. There are kind of little touch points that you can kind of see what they're trying to do. But the, it's basically Romeo and Juliet is what David is trying to say. <laughs> but the um the cultural thing's hard to understand. I mean, I wonder um if I asked some of my British friends if this is a movie they would actually recall by name. And I wonder if the impact Boy, governor. <laughs> uh racist. And I wonder if I I wonder if I you know pulled them aside and asked them if they've heard of a movie called Still Crazy, if mm-hmm. they whether they liked it or not, if it would actually be something within their cultural ethos, you know, mm-hmm. their cultural experience. I think that that's fair. I mean, in Canada here, for instance, it's, it's a TV reference, but you will probably not have most people understand who, say, Red Green is, or uh, even who Don Cherry is, to bring up a name from the past. Um, Sh- Sharon Lois and... Uh, Sharon Lois and Bram Karen. and stuff like that. But Pride has no cultural relevance whatsoever when you go over to the UK. Uh, for many different reasons why why that happens to be. But I think that sometimes, yeah, just to pay, based on your location, of course, like it just was not something that we grew up with or had any kind of history with. And to that point quickly, I, you know, I just remembered in the late 90s, you know, Hong Kong cinema was blowing up in mm-hmm. a different way. Helen and I recently rewatched a really big popular series called uh, Guok Jai, The Young and Dangerous. Um that was like the biggest, it was the birth of the young gangster films uh, in the, I think it's the early 90s it started, but um, it's terrible. It doesn't hold up, but we still watched it because it's cartoonish. But I'm thinking that was a time when the only reason I saw it was because my Hong Kong friend had bootlegs that were brought mm-hmm. to Toronto that we got at this weird shop. We get this like, I, don't, I can't remember if it was DVD yet or it was still VHS. And so... Uh, that culture was so distinctly separate and still in the late 90s. And now, if we're thinking about, let's say, 2019, everything's so intertwined. You, you mean 2020, the year that we're currently recording this in. So if you think about um, 2020 and everything is so entwined, intertwined, um, I think that's one of the weird things that's happening for, for, for good or for ill, um, that the globalization of culture is a fascinating idea that we're bringing up with this. I like, and that would be something that would have to happen in 10 years from now, even. I, I, am, I am interested in that because I have more and more people in my life that are watching like the big UK hit, but also watching the uh, Japanese reality show, Terrace House, and they're also watching uh, Hong Kong films, and they're also watching et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's no longer, okay, well, on TV right now, this is what you get. And in the theater right now, this is what you get. When you can release it onto Netflix and now it's worldwide, you can watch that thing, it completely changes it. And I think like my my optimist inside of me really hopes what that means is that there is like that give and take where it's like, oh, I, I, I can use this piece of media to start to understand a little bit about what that culture is like. And I can bond over that with other people as well. The pessimist in me sees that every time I have thought something was going to have positive effects, it's never had positive effects. Uh, I'm thinking about like the internet and other things like that. So well, I don't know. There's, there's something about it. That I, I like the idea of sharing media across the, the world because it doesn't make us feel quite so isolated from one another. I think just as a twist to that, you know, uh, when people 
you know, there's this trend now of people trying to become woodsmen because they're so anti-technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we won't get into the anti-virus, uh, anti-vaccine thing, but um, those sentiments are fascinating because it's very selfish. It's like, it's not no longer, technology is no longer benefiting me in this moment. So uh, fuck technology. But technology is the basis of why you're even in a heated room that we're talking into microphones, you know, things like that. The internet is a fascinating one. Uh, I, I read a book, I, can't, I think it's Notes on a Nervous Planet, but they were talking about how the first generation, whether it was the first 15 years, it was only positive sociological effects. So like the uh, cross-pollination of culture and mm-hmm. sharing of uh, information and being able to uh, discover new ways of approaching problems. It's just that now with the, uh, well, you know how I am anti-capitalist, but the commercialization of that uh, tool, it's, it's changing its sort of... Um, personality right machine sorry i fell asleep and so we um get to this point where i don't i don't know i was just thinking you brought up these cultural references from when uh, we were kids in canada but you know when i was a kid in canada we had uh, you know a camera uh, it was a 13, 11 channel dial on a crt tv even before that i think only four channels are operative like when i was a kid kid in the bees in in the uk i think into the 90s unless you bought satellite i think it was still four channels of bbc well i grew up on a farm so i only had three channels growing up until i think about 1999 actually is when we started to have satellite brought satellite in one was the cbc and two were just global stations which basically showed the same thing for for the most part so yeah like two and a half channels is what i grew up on for the majority of my my youth think about so then i'm thinking about how does that influence how we watch a movie i you know mm-hmm. i'm trying to explain to my son you know so you guys what you, you used to have to watch movies with commercials in it well not just the commercial i mean he doesn't understand it in principle but i told him the other day uh you know we used to wake up on saturday mornings to watch cartoons he's like what do you mean i'm like cartoons were not on tv there there was a set schedule and even as i'm explaining i'm like there's no way he'll ever understand this concept Cartoons are on, on demand, never mind on Netflix, but there mm-hmm. are now television stations that are solely dedicated to kids, to adult cartoons, etc. So he will never experience this idea of where we came from. Um, so now we're trying to look at 1999 and then Britain, UK in 1999, and then music and films mm-hmm. and going to the theater. That's, I don't know. I, I, I really dislike this movie, but uh, if I met somebody who thought that it was existentially like powerful and this is what inspired me you know i might shrug and just say sure uh, all right if that's good for you you do you okay well apparently the machine is happy with what we've talked about here so far um oh and here comes the trivia receipt uh okay well apparently some events in the band's history were inspired by actual events involving real life bands so brian's absence from the band resembles sid barrett's departure from pink floyd due to a drug-induced nervous breakdown bino's tardiness for a gig echoes that of keith moon the notoriously erratic drummer of the who the character of ray appears to be inspired in some part by david lee roth famed frontman for van halen and other bands, such as Deep Purple, have undergone lineup changes with various degrees of infighting and success. Uh, I mean, it shows why it feels so muddled. Mm-hmm. I mean, a it's single... you're doing like 17 different bands as a backstory. Right. I mean, those bands become famous for a single one of those events. I, I was going to call them problems, but it's not negative in the historical context. But mm-hmm. these things that happen and they try to shove it all down into one crappy, uh, sorry, one film and uh, one band. It, it was too confusing. Mm-hmm. Too many issues, maybe. 
Um, lastly, the songs in the film were written by notable musicians, including Mick Jones of Foreigner and Jeff Lynn from Electric Light Orchestra. You guys could have done better. You could have done better. <laughs> and if I could off the top of my head remember the big song that Foreigner did, I would make a reference to it right now. <laughs> David, sometimes we just need to know what love is. <laughs> we'll go karaoke on this one episode. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The machine is getting mad at us, but we need to give... A rating to this one okay oh sorry uh, yeah please come <laughs> here, please finish the question no uh, what would you rate this david uh one i'm giving it a 1.5 but again due to our rules we have to rate down which means that that is going to be rated a one star so currently it is rated number two on our list of movies of 1999 rc blues still reigns supreme britons can email me hate mail and uh no <laughs> All right, I really am hoping for a palate cleanser here next week. Um, little receipt here is finished printing out. Uh, oh, we get to watch She's All That next week. Sweet. I, I like that movie. Freddie Prince Jr. And Rachel something. Lee Cook. Is it Rachel Lee Cook in that Wise, one? Wise is the one that I... I feel ah. so bad because I, I didn't watch any of these teen comedies when I was an actual teen. Oh, so. well, I, I wasn't a teen at that time. But... Uh, <laughs> shit oh, but damn uh, it. <laughs> it was uh that's a that was a pretty good movie i think we'll have to watch it now i now guess we'll I'm, have to, I'll have to figure it out if i'm misremembering which <laughs> film mm. yeah it's like right oh that was 10 things i hate about you i've right? been thinking about yeah. which is a great movie that yeah. one i like yeah. all right well get the hell out of my house uh we've done our our weekly pittance to our machine here i have no idea why i keep coming back to you.